Hello and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on US foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. And I'm Trevor Thrall. America's history with regime change is long and complicated. From our covert Cold War interventions all the way to the 2003 Iraq War and beyond, we've often intervened in the hopes of obtaining a more congenial regime for American interests, whether it's the US government or whether it's the United Fruit Company. Advocates of regime change point to successful transformations in places like Japan and Germany. Um, But to be honest, if you've been watching the news in the last couple of decades, You've watched Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya. Um, You've seen that this process might be a lot more difficult than we've commonly assumed. So joining us today is Ben Dennison, a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Strategic Studies at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Ben is a scholar of regime change um, and the author of a recent Cato study on the topic, and that study is called The More Things Change, The More They Stay the Same, The Failure of Regime Change Operations. Ben, welcome to Power Problems. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, let's not bury the lead here, right? This, the, the conclusion is obvious. Your work and the work of lots of other scholars suggests that regime change doesn't work. Just start by giving us the bottom line. Why does regime change not work? So um, my work and a lot of other scholars' work has often argued that regime change simply doesn't work because it fails to achieve the goals that the interveners normally set out for these missions, um, whether it be to promote more democracy, uh, to promote more regional stability, uh, improve economic relations or disimprove interstate relations, no matter what the goal is, uh, no matter how you measure it, uh, after regime change happens, they often just simply, uh, those goals that were thought about at the beginning don't seem to materialize. And so, you know, it sounds like, and 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 I, maybe you could say a little bit more here, that there's sort of um, a, a number of ways it doesn't work. Uh, I mean, it seems like the United yes. States has tried a lot of ways to make regime change work, but it, it, it can't find one. And, and is there sort of a root cause reason why all these different approaches don't seem to work? So um, depending on the goal of the regime change mission, the way you might actually try to do uh, regime change uh, might differ. But I think really the root uh, problems with these missions are that one, they require there's a, a fundamental legitimacy gap uh, between you know, having an installed government um, that is put in place by outsiders and getting the local population to actually support that uh, government, uh, as opposed to kind of an indigenously um, supported government, and also um, a fundamental lack of institutional bureaucratic capacity, uh, often with these uh, installed governments, that leads to kind of less state capacity to produce uh, more stable relations, better economies, and um, less outbreaks of civil wars. So kind of in the process of regime change, you kind of have this problem of you're removing the legitimate government, at least from the perception of the domestic population uh, through military force. And then you're also destroying kind of bureaucracy that was already there. And then that kind of leaves this uh, vacuum that makes it difficult to fill. So, I mean, I've I've often thought that that research is is kind of interesting because it basically implies that the act of regime change in removing the legitimacy of the government basically means that regime change can never work. It sort of it sort of seems like that's what we're arguing here. That is the case often that um, it becomes very difficult to make a government that's imposed by an outside state uh, seem legitimate to the domestic population. There is some research that shows in some very specific cases where you have a large external threat like the Soviet Union, um, you can overcome that leg- that legitimacy gap, such as with in Germany and Japan, 
because they're so uh, fearful of a potential invasion by the Soviet Union, they're willing uh, to work with kind of the outside power to prevent a different, uh, more nefarious outside power from coming in. Um, but those conditions are often uh, very rare in international politics. Yeah, it's interesting too. Just you know, because if you think about how difficult civil wars are to uh, to end, and how hard it is for a a winner in a civil war to be legitimate, it's it's like you take all those problems and you multiply them by the interstate sort of you know outsider problem, and it just gets really nuts. And in fact, it's actually um, yeah. What makes it even more difficult than even the civil war problem is that. Not only do you have this worry about the domestic legitimacy, but then you also have um, the person who instituted the regime change mission or the uh, the government. So say the United States, when they um, try to uh, replace a regime abroad, they also have different uh, foreign policies and goals. They want that regime to actually uh, carry out. So there's almost a principal agent problem where in doing the things that the U.S. tells their installed regime uh, to do, if they carry it out successfully, it makes them less legitimate to the domestic population. Whereas if they're responding democratically to kind of the, the issues uh, that the local population actually cares about, that actually then makes them uh, less appealing to the United States or whoever installed this regime. So there's kind of this tension between do you do the things that the foreign power who installed you wants you to do or you do the things that your domestic population wants you to do? And that tension kind of really, really spirals in producing some uh, really tough outcomes. So the question, I guess, really is, why do people, um, particularly here in Washington, continue to support regime change if it's been unsuccessful? I mean, so we, we mentioned the cases of Japan and Germany before. Those are the cases that are most commonly pointed to as successes. Um, are there other successes? Are there other reasons why people continue to advocate for regime change? So I'll just uh, quickly flag that um, this tradition of American uh, regime change behavior actually goes back even further, at least back to 1898, if not earlier. Um, so there is kind of this American tradition of thinking that promoting democracy abroad uh, through and force um, could be a viable way to create uh, more security in, uh, for the United States and produce more governments that are more aligned with their interests. But in recent uh, years, um, there seems to be this persistent idea that if you can't get a government to agree to a certain diplomatic negotiation or there's some really tough problem that you can't uh, square away with the government, it might just be easier and quicker just to change the government abroad and then get a government who will negotiate with you, and then you can solve that problem. It's kind of this persistent myth that, oh, regime change will be quick and easy. We can get in, we can get out, um, and we won't have to stay there long, and we can get the goals that we want. Um, unfortunately, Often, once you remove that regime, you end up having a situation where things are not as easy as you thought they would be. Uh, you don't have as much knowledge about kind of the local dynamics that are on the ground, and it ends up spiraling into a much broader, much more complicated mission than you ever intended. Uh, so I really think this kind of belief that things can be quick and easy is this kind of psychological uh, bias that many people still have that uh, needs to be kind of squared. Uh, squared. Let's actually let's back up for a second because we've been talking about regime change here, and we we haven't actually defined it um, because there's regime change, right? And then there's military intervention, um, and then there's sort of other forms of intervention in states. Um, and I'm curious, you know, where do you draw the line between those things? What is it that counts as regime change versus just uh, you know military intervention? Because we do all these things, um, and there's a variety of interventions, particularly um, in the post Cold War space that I'm not sure if they're regime change or not. So yeah, it, it, a lot of these things actually then kind of blend together, um, which makes it 
trying to study this a little difficult. Um, I usually use kind of a, um, a general definition of regime change as using armed force or the threat of armed force to impose uh, a new regime in a foreign country. So really trying to look at how the use of military force can be used to actually install uh, a regime. And oftentimes that can, it can start as an intervention where you're just trying to intervene, maybe a civil war, but then you realize, or a country realizes that the only way to get the outcome that they want would be to replacing the government uh, and installing it that way. So um, an intervention itself is kind of the use of armed force without necessarily targeting the actual who is governing in the country. But once you get into who is going to govern kind of after the war, um, then that becomes, a re or your top line who's currently governing, that would be uh, where regime change kind of crosses that line. And oftentimes you can actually go from regime change even to a broader intervention as well. So these things can kind of go both directions. And that makes trying to figure out exactly what people are, um, what policymakers might be advocating for a little difficult. What about covert interventions? Um, because I know there's been some pretty good literature on this. I'm thinking of Lindsay O'Rourke's book in particular. Um, but the idea that sometimes, you know, perhaps we just engage in a little internal meddling with elites in a country, um, say in Iran in the 1950s, and we, we topple the existing government, we get the government we want, but it's not a military intervention. Where do you put that kind of covert regime change? Um, wh where does that fit in your mental model of this stuff? So I think uh, covert uh, intervention, and I'll echo that Lindsay's book is absolutely fantastic. Um, it's often done because it, you, you don't, you rec oftentimes you recognize that there are these broader constraints that a full-scale military intervention would prevent uh, you from engaging in something of, on that scale. So you still want to try to get a quick and easy policy change uh, without the investment. Unfortunately, uh, from her book and other research, um, these covert uh, regime change uh, operations often are less successful than the overt attempts. It's actually very difficult to try to use covert tools to overthrow uh, an existing government. And so these, uh, you know, even though they are, they've been attempted throughout uh, various moments in time, um, they're often less likely to actually achieve uh, even just overthrowing the government, never mind their goals and whatnot. The benefit, I guess, of covert versus overt, though, is you're less likely to then spiral into these even broader, um, uh, even broader nation-building missions that you can uh, when you engage in overt regime change. So at least you know you're kind of you're constraining yourself a little bit to give yourself plausible deniability, but it's actually less likely to even uh, overthrow the government than the overt attempts. Yeah. I, so one of the things that I think you know the covert strategy, and, and you, you came close to saying this with the, with the plausible deniability thing, is 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 part of the reason you need that as the United States. You know, part is because we're trying to protect our sort of liberal good name. Um, you know, this is not really behavior that a, a you know polite democracy should be engaging in. So you're trying to do it sneakily, but that sort of raises an, a broader question for me about the efficiency or effectiveness of you know military intervention generally, but regime change in particular. Uh, which is, you know, sometimes you hear from uh, you know neocons, I guess mostly, but even you know, say in the case of Afghanistan, you heard it from former you know commanders there. You know, we could win here if we just tried harder, longer, and and weren't so nice. And you know, I, I think back to the Romans, like you know, the Romans sort of knew how to take over countries and install new regimes. And you know, you don't play nice, you don't play like a democracy to do that. I, is it possible we're just not doing it right because we're scared of getting a bad reputation? Uh, so there are folks who do argue, you know, make this claim that, 
if you were to do kind of to match the proper nation building strategy or the proper regime change strategy, you would be able to achieve more goals. Um, a lot of people are focused on kind of the Marshall Plan as maybe that uh, providing resources uh, to Europe uh, to allow for kind of the occupation of Germany to succeed. Um, unfortunately, if you look at kind of uh, what um, what the reports coming out of Afghanistan, we've already spent uh, more money for uh, if you even with the adjusted dollars in Afghanistan than we ever spent on the Marshall Plan. So that gives us, you know, maybe we're not doing things uh, exactly right. Um, but the, I think the biggest inhibition to this idea that if you had the right strategy or the right ideas, you would be able to do regime change uh, more effectively or intervention more effectively. It requires um, you having the knowledge about the local government and the local institutions and the local population uh, prior to the intervention or prior to the regime change mission to actually know what type of strategy would succeed. And I, from my own research and looking at many of these cases, that level of information, that fine grain detail you would need to know that, you know, even have a chance at trying to successfully um, change these governments just doesn't exist. Um, there's not the kind of uh, intelligence being gathered. Uh, it's very difficult. For example, if you're if you're going to go to war against the with the country, they're not going to be willing to let you know your diplomats and your intelligence officers come in before the war and search around and figure out how best we can actually understand these institutions. Uh, so it becomes really difficult to actually get this strategy uh, correct beforehand. Um, and it's really not, unfortunately, until you actually arrive in the territory. Um, that you can even begin trying to figure out how all these different institutional constraints might make things even more difficult than you initially believed. I got to say, Trevor, that argument drives me crazy because it is such a, and, and I think this is a problem with the broader literature and regime change more generally, is it's such a US-centric argument. Because while we can say, you know, maybe the US has been particularly prone in the last, you know, 50, 60, 70 years towards regime change, um, there are other countries and other great powers that have engaged in this for years and years and years. Just take Afghanistan, right? The Soviets had the exact same experience in Afghanistan that we did before them. The British had the exact same experience in Afghanistan. Um, this this isn't about sort of America's inability to do regime change. This is, as, as Ben was pointing out, this is the fact that those informational problems and extending control away from your state a long way, it's all very difficult in that foreign setting. And that applies to every country that's trying to do this. It's not just America. Yeah, sure. I, I guess, I, and I totally agree with you, but de devil's advocate wise, the British Empire was very effective at regime change, right? I, you just have to be willing to do things that are anti-democratic. Right. I mean, that, that, I think there's no question you could we could take over Afghanistan and run it as a protectorate. No problem. See, I'm not so sure about that because, I, OK, I agree with you that it's easier it when you're not trying to be nice. It's perhaps easier when you're not saying, oh, we have to install a democracy. Um, but I mean, again, again, I just want to come back to come back to the Soviet experience in Afghanistan. They were utterly brutal. They were willing to do things we would not consider in a thousand years. And it didn't work. It didn't work at all. Um, ben, I feel like we've sort of been talking over you. Do you have any thoughts on this? I'll just add for the British example, um, you also have to think, you know, you can think back, there was a, when you talk to people who study um, colonization and colonial rule and imperialism, they talk about the difference between indirect rule and direct rule, uh, which is kind of, we don't use those terms anymore because we're not in the business of uh, empire as our former Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld uh, told us. Um, but those terms kind of fit well with the British, what they were doing was kind of leaving a lot of the current institutions in place in places like Afghanistan and in uh, other parts of the world where they were engaging in regime change and just trying to get a leader to change, uh, to you know, then basically pay their tribute to the British Empire rather than um, 
necessarily kind of overhauling the entire uh, institutional system like the Soviets and the U.S. have both tried uh, in Afghanistan. So in a sense, what the literature has shown is that if you're able to just change a leader and not change the underlying institutions, uh, you're more likely to succeed in the regime change mission. The problem is the number of cases you can do just change that very top layer um, leaders is very, very small. I mean, this was the plan that the U.S. actually had for Iraq. If you look at the planning documents before the war, the idea was you could just remove Saddam and maybe the top, top, top level layer of Ba'athists. And once they arrived in the country, they realized that plan was completely inadequate for the kinds of goals that they had. Yeah. Well, I think that's exactly the strategy that the United States you know, played cor- corporate sort of empire strategy with the Central America and stuff, which is you go yeah. in and you you pay off the elites. You don't remove them. You just make it worth their while to play ball. And I think you could make an art. I mean, as sleazy as many, many, many of those efforts were, and, and they often led to bad things in those countries, corruption, all that sort of jazz. But that's certainly a cheaper and less bloody way to try <laughs> than actually invading and toppling governments and, and so on. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, that is kind of, I think in general, what you see is that throughout, you know, you know history, you know, even beyond, you know, the U.S. and even the British, you know, that is just co-opting elites is almost always cheaper and less bloody and kind of better for, you know, the protection of human rights almost at sometimes uh, than kind of toppling all of the, uh, the institutions and trying to build them from scratch. Okay, so before we all start accidentally making the case for a new wave of covert regime change, let's let's pull back a little here. Yes. Um, let's pull back to what it is that we're doing today, because regime change in sort of the modern American vernacular um, is is talking about a very specific set of things. It's talking about Libya and Iraq. It's talking about um, our interventions in Syria or other places. Basically, all this stuff since 1991 in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Um, and I think it would be really interesting to maybe talk through a couple of those examples um, and talk about just the practical implications of regime change in those places. What have we learned from it? I think both the Iraq and Libya cases provide an interesting case of uh, learning from these cases, at least in terms of how our presidents um, and decision makers have learned from each of these cases. In Iraq, this is kind of our, I guess, the first kind of, even though it comes after the Afghanistan uh, invasion, it's kind of the you know, first big uh, attempt at large-scale uh, regime change uh, in the Bush administration. And there's this kind of belief that you can simply go in, uh, you can get in, you can topple the Saddam regime very quickly, uh, then you can exit the country very quickly and have a new flourishing democracy uh, in Iraq. That obviously did not actually occur. It required it actually devolved into a lengthy state-building mission. Tro- American troops are still in Iraq um, for a variety of reasons, and it's kind of ended up destabilizing the region rather than pride in the stability uh, that folks thought. Um, in Libya, uh, there was actually great resistance, I think, initially to doing the regime change mission because of the fears that it might turn into a similar uh, type uh, mission as the, Iraq, as the Iraq war and also Afghanistan didn't do. So there was some kind of uh, learning, but that learning kind of eventually, because of the conditions on the ground and different people in the White House, they got convinced that maybe we need to go engage in this uh, you know, mission to overthrow the Gaddafi regime. Um, and interestingly enough, if you look at um, President Obama, he said when he was doing all these interviews, when he was leaving office, he said that one of his biggest lessons he learned uh, in his time as president is that don't, you know, don't do types of wars like the Libya war without a clear exit strategy and without a clear plan for what comes the day after. Now, he just kind of thought that the day after would kind of everything would wake up and be happy in Libya. Uh, and instead, it devolved in kind of this brutal civil war that's still going on. Um, so in that case, there has been some learning, at least among some folks in Washington, that 
you know, you should be very resistant to get in these types of wars and always have a plan for the day after. Um, but unfortunately, um, there are still folks who think that we can plan well for the day after and we can make a good plan uh, in order to you know, avoid Iraq and avoid Libya and kind of still be able to do these types of things in Venezuela or Iran. Um, and that leads to some major, major problems uh, in the policymaking world today. Um, it's also important to talk about that both of those cases ended up having effects on other great powers in the international system. So Russia and China uh, look at the Iraq war and look at Libya, and they see that as demonstrating American regime change intent. And that causes them to think that American democracy promotion efforts or sanctions policy or even humanitarian aid is all kind of a scheme to get um, regime change started in various countries, uh, even though it usually isn't. Um, it's just kind of it, those uh, regime changes in the past have actually ended up harming American foreign policy and all these other different venues. And I don't think uh, many policymakers actually recognize that. Has the, the rationale for regime change changed in your opinion? Um, because so looking at this as somewhat of an outsider, it seems to me that in the Obama administration, particularly with Libya, there was a really strong emphasis on the responsibility to protect idea. Um, and that, that showed up again in the Syria debates, even though we didn't actually sort of engage in a major military intervention there. Um, and that's very different from the way the Bush administration was conceptualizing regime change. So is the rationale shifting over time or is it just the policymakers sort of grab whatever rationale seems most useful at the time? Well, I think there is a at least internal logic or rationale among the different administrations um, and it's, you know, largely the goals you might want to engage with for, uh, in order to launch these regime change operations, it changes over time. Um, but it all comes down to kind of, there is some goal that we, that we want. And in order to get that goal, we have to remove, uh, these governments. I mean, back in the Reagan administration, when we were just talking about lots of the, uh, Central American cases, you know, they had, they actually, you know, human rights and democracy was actually the justifi justification they gave for a lot of their covert actions. Uh, in uh, Central America. So it was kind of similar in a, in a weird way to the responsibility to protect kind of saying these governments, we have to not allow these uh, communist governments to come to power and will harm human rights and democracy and things of that nature. Um, but I think today what we're often seeing is kind of this idea of we decide which types of regimes are the ones that um, we will accept as um being able to talk for their citizens and willing to represent their countries on the international scene. And if we don't see the legitimacy of that regime, um, we just, that's when you start seeing actions uh, to try to destabilize that regime or um, trying to find ways to kind of get a different uh, type of government in place, which is, I think, leads to um, a lot of the problems that we're seeing with uh, the crises in Iran and Venezuela and North Korea as well. Well, I think that's a probably a good segue into a closing question, which is um, the topic is salient again. I mean, it's pretty much always salient in Washington. And the crises that you mentioned there, Iran and Venezuela in particular, North Korea a couple of years ago more so, I think. Yeah. Um, but those are places where the Trump administration has suggested regime change. Some of its fellow travelers have suggested regime change. Um, I guess just what are your broad thoughts on that? So I think in all of those cases, um, it's incredibly uh, harmful, you know, the, the, for the various crises that are going on. Uh, there's like clear international problems in both uh, Venezuela and Iran. And these kind of latent threats of regime change end up making it more difficult to find a solution that is mutually acceptable to both sides. Uh, in Venezuela, you have a clear humanitarian crisis in addition to a political crisis. Um, and trying to get the United States to kind of 
had this regime change threat over the Maduro regime makes them less likely to accept, you know, humanitarian aid coming into the country from American NGOs. Um, it's making it harder um, to kind of get a negotiated regional solution and try to find a way to kind of solve this uh, massive um, humanitarian issue. And so while, you know, trying to do things to, you know, help human rights in these various countries is a positive thing, by having this looming threat of regime change over top of it, it makes them less likely to actually work with uh, different branches of the United States uh, foreign policy bureaucracy or other regional actors to try to uh, solve uh, the problem. If you look at the Iranian situation there, where we're worried about uh, Iran's nuclear program, you know, pretty much everything that the Trump administration has done since coming into office has convinced, you know, made it sound like they're interested in overthrowing the regime in Tehran. Uh, and so at this point, looking at how the Trump administration talks about North Korea versus how it talks about um, Iran, it makes it clear that there's no reason why the Iranians shouldn't try to go and get a nuclear bomb for themselves uh, in order to protect their regime uh, from any potential strikes against it by the Trump administration. And that's, you know, a situation that is not necessarily conducive to um, global stability or regional stability, having the Iranians trying to get a nuclear bomb. Uh, so in that case, in both cases, it seems that um, rather than trying to find, make a quick and easy solution to either of these crises, these kind of discussions of regime change around all these uh, hotspots and only end up making the crisis um, more difficult to resolve and potentially makes it even more destabilizing. Yeah, there's a there's a quote from the Nobel laureate Thomas Schelling um, back before his death that I, I really loved. And it was he basically said, American non-proliferation policy, and by that he meant the invasion of Iraq, American non-proliferation policy is now the greatest driver of nuclear proliferation. And I yeah. honestly think that should be engraved in stone somewhere in Washington. Yeah, it's, it seems like, you know, th th when you when you convince the rest of the world that regime change is your goal, you force all discussion from that point forward into a zero-sum thing, and that makes negotiating brutally difficult because the other team is sure that you're, you know, either lying, cheating, or going to coerce them into losing something, you know, precious, if not, you know, outright destroy them. And and even in the cases where we would like to negotiate, you can't really get started if that's what they're thinking. Yeah, I mean, even if you look at um, arms negotiations with Russia, um, you'll see in certain discussions, you know, this kind of underlying fear that, you know, if there is um, American uh, first strike capabilities, it's going to be to target the regime, not necessarily the territorial integrity of Russia, but there's a threat to you know, regime decapitation strike. Uh, and this is kind of a real fear in some of those uh, in these negotiations, even though there's nothing that you know, the, it's not that the U.S. is interested in doing that, but we've shown intent around the world that we are interested in engaging in regime change. So why wouldn't we try it in somewhere else uh, as well? Well, it's not really a happy note, but I think that's all we have yeah. time for today. Um, so thanks, uh, everybody, for being here. Thank you, Ben, for, for talking to us today. Thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman, and to everyone at home for listening. Um, if you want to continue the conversation on Twitter, our handle is at Power Problems. And if you like the show, do leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts. <laughs>